if, if I were to come up here this morning, if I were to, to, to bring a, a, a lightsaber up here, you might wonder where I got that. I can't tell you. Um, but, if, but if I were to bring one up, you would immediately know what that was for, right? You would know the purpose of a lightsaber. Or if I were to go over here and pick up Keith's guitar and say, what's this for? That would be an easy answer for you. If I were to point at the, the playground out here and say, what's the playground for? It would be easy for you to explain, well, here, Justin, here's what a playground is for. Well, what about Mother's Day? If I were to ask you, what's Mother's Day for? Uh, what would you say? Mother's Day was actually started in 1908. It was the first Mother's Day celebration. It was started by a lady named Anna Jarvis. Uh, Anna Jarvis wanted to honor her mother for her work as a Sunday school teacher and also because she had tended to the wounded uh, during the Civil War and she wanted the day to honor mothers. And so she just kind of started this celebration and then she started to campaign uh, with, with the U.S. Congress for them to recognize Mother's Day as a national holiday. So she spent six years campaigning for Mother's Day to be a national holiday, and finally it was recognized by Congress. But then something happened, something changed. People figured out you could make money with Mother's Day, uh, with flowers and with greeting cards. Uh, and the lady who had started Mother's Day became disgusted with what she saw was happening on Mother's Day. She was, she was disgusted with the commercialization of Mother's Day. And so she started a campaign to abolish Mother's Day. All right, the same lady that started it. And this is what she wrote. She said, florist and greeting card manufacturers, she said that they were charlatans, bandits, pirates, racketeers, kidnappers, and termites. Now there's some, you can use those sometime. Kidnappers and termites that would undermine with their greed one of the finest, noblest, and truest movements and celebrations. And so she went door to door collecting petitions to try to get Mother's Day abolished. She spent the rest of her life trying to get rid of the holiday that she had helped to create. Now, I just love, I'm going to start every Mother's Day with that story now um, and try to figure a way to tie it in. So, so, so here's how I want to try to tie this in. She, she thought that Mother's Day was going to be about one thing, and it turned out to be about something else entirely. She thought, here's what Mother's Day is going to be like, but Mother's Day wound up being something very different from what she intended. And so she said, you know what, we just need to get rid of it because it's not what I thought it was going to be. I think that that's very similar to what happens with us sometimes with marriage. We have one thing in mind. Marriage is going to be like this. And then we get into marriage and it winds up being something else entirely. And so we want to get rid of it. Maybe not the entire institution of marriage. Well, some of us might. But, but generally not the entire institution of marriage. But we want to at least get rid of our marriage. Because it's not serving the purpose we had in mind when we entered into marriage. Well, what purpose did we have in mind? Uh, very often today, I think the purpose is this. Listen to what, what one writer says. The ideal of marriage as a permanent contractual union designed for the sake of mutual love, procreation, and protection is slowly giving way to a new reality of marriage as a terminal sexual contract 
designed for the gratification of the individual parties. Now, what did he say in that long quote? He said, marriage used to be about us, now it's just about me. It used to be more about us, now it's just about me. We've started to see marriage as about my happiness, my enjoyment, my fulfillment, which is why we're so obsessed with finding the perfect soulmate who won't make us change in any way. They've got to be perfectly compatible so that I'll be happy with them in every way. But it's also why we want sometimes to chunk the whole thing when it's not going the way we thought it was going to. So, uh, last week we tried to give a biblical definition of marriage. And we saw that it was a, a covenant that involves a lifelong commitment between a man and a woman to be loving and to be faithful and to make the other person the most important person in your life. This week we want to ask, to what end marriage? What's the purpose of marriage. We saw what it is, but what's it for? Why did God give us this institution? So we're going to be looking at several scripture passages. Let me go ahead and read these for us. Uh, this is God's word. Uh, you probably best just to follow around your bulletin. We're starting in Genesis chapter two. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Then from Genesis 1.28, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the water. Uh, from the book of Malachi, chapter 2, Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faith, faithless to the wife of your youth. And then finally from Ephesians. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Let me pray for us. Um, Father, this is your word, 
And I pray that you would uh, help us to hear it and to believe it uh, and to trust it and to put it into practice. And I pray that you would help me to speak it clearly uh, and faithfully and truthfully. And I pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, basically this morning, all I want to do for us is look at four purposes of marriage. Uh, four things in regard to the purpose of marriage. Uh, and, and they're this, friendship, holiness, children, and the gospel. Friendship, holiness, children, and the gospel. I want to start with friendship, our, our companionship. Uh, as you read the scriptures, it's very obvious that you and I are made for relationships. And the primary relationship that we are made to be in is that we're made to have a relationship with the God who made us. Uh, that's the fundamental relationship in our lives that can only be uh, had, only be restored through the gospel and through the work of Jesus. Uh, imagine that after church this morning, you were to drive over to the QT to, to, to get your slushies, but you decided to fill up on gas too. And you realize that during the church, the worship hour, gas was now $5 a gallon. And you were outraged by this. And so you said, I'm not paying $5 a gallon for gas. I'm going to, where's the water hose? I'm getting water. It's cheap. I'm putting that in the gas tank instead. And so you fill your car up with water instead. Now, what's going to happen? Well, it, it might sputter for a second, but it's eventually going to die. It's going to break. Uh, gas is, is what your car is made to run on. Uh, I can't say once my car breaks down, once my car breaks down, well, it needs new windshield wipers or it needs new tires, and I'm just going to slap some of those on and it's going to be okay. Now, the problem is, I just put water in a machine that's actually made to run on gasoline. Uh, you and I are made to run on God. We're built to run on God. We're built to be in a dependent relationship with the God who made us. Uh, when we try to fill that tank with money or uh, possessions or relationships, uh, we damage ourselves. We do damage to the people we are in relationship with as well. Uh, you, 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 can, you can change the tires, you can add neon, you can add chrome, you, you can pimp the car out, do whatever you're going to do to it, but, but you're not going to go anywhere in a car if there's no gas in the tank. We're not going to get anywhere if, if we're not in relationship with God. We're made to, to be in relationship with God. But let's think about the illustrations a little bit further. Let's think about the car a little bit more. That car is designed to run on gas, right? Can wipers and, wind, can wipers and tires and mufflers, that sort of thing, can they function as a substitute for gas? No, the car is made to run on gas. Can the car run without wipers and tires? Can it run without wipers and tires? Well, yeah, sort of. I mean, it's not pretty, but I'm sure they've probably done it on top gear at some point. I mean, you just, you, you know, the tires blow out and, and you keep going. It can kind of run, but it's not really good for it to go down the highway without tires. It's not really for it to good to go through a rainstorm without windshield wipers. Gas is the most fundamental need that car has, but it also does need those other things. It needs tires. It needs windshield wipers, etc. Our relationship with God is our most fundamental need. But we also need relationships with other people. We need relationships with other people. 
We're designed for a relationship with God, but we're also designed for relationships with other people. Now, you see this, and we looked at this some last week, but you see this in the creation account. Uh, where, where all through the creation account, God creates something, he says, and it was good. He creates something else, and he says, and it was good. And then finally, he creates Adam, and he says, it's not good. It's not good that man should be alone. The, the, the first time in, in, in the whole thing, there's no sin in the world yet. And yet God is saying, here's something that's not good. Um, it's, it's, you know, uh, Adam, he, he doesn't need to be by himself. It's almost like God is, is saying he needs somebody besides me, as, as heretical as that may sound. But he said he, he needs companionship. And I'm going to make a companion for him. It's not good that he should be alone. Now, there's, there's all kind of application that we can make from that, but I'm just going to make one, and it's this. Don't be a hermit, okay? Uh, don't be a hermit. You, you, you are made for relationships with other people. You are designed for a relationship with God, yes, and that's the most foundational one, but he also designed you to have relationships with other people. But here's what, because we're talking about marriage, here's what I want us to see. You're designed for a relationship with God. You're designed for a relationship with other people. But you're also designed for a relationship with a person of the opposite sex. Now, you see this, in, in, again, in the Genesis text. For Adam, there was no one suitable to be found. There wasn't anybody who fit him. So what did God do? God creates Eve. God creates a woman, and he brings her to Adam. Now, some of you would probably like God to do that for you. Uh, but I think that's probably a one-time thing. Uh, God, God, God creates Eve, and he brings her to Adam. And Adam sees Eve, and he says, in, in a sense, that's it. That's it. That, that's what I've been looking for. She's the one. You're different from me, but you're me. We're fit. We go together. This makes sense. So they get married. They come together. They become one flesh. They become this entire new entity, as it were, something completely different. They're no longer just two solitary individuals, but they're actually one in every way. In marriage, uh, the two become one. And that means that in marriage, you have the opportunity to experience a type of unity and companionship with another person that you never imagined was possible. It's also the reason marriage can be so painful at times as well, because you're in this unity with another person. But you're meant to be one with them socially, legally, sexually, emotionally, spiritually, one in every way with this other person. You begin to relate to the world as one. Uh, your goal in this relationship with them is for them to know you like nobody else knows you, and for you to know them like nobody else knows them to see each other, to really see each other, your faults and your sins and your shortcomings, and to still be loved and welcomed and accepted, to really experience intimacy, to be completely vulnerable, and at the same time completely safe. Uh, Brene Brown talks about how we all uh, battle with feeling like we're not enough. Feeling like we're not enough, never smart enough, never successful enough, never good enough, never thin enough. The goal of marriage is for you to at least have this one relationship where you can take off your mask, let down your hair, and be the real you, 
and still be enough. And still be enough, even on your worst days, to, to, to experience that kind of relationship, that kind of intimacy, that kind of acceptance from another person. Now, if that's the goal, one of the goals and purposes of marriage, this deep oneness, this intimacy, uh, what does that mean? Uh, if, if you're not married, doesn't it make sense then, if that's, if that's one of the purposes of marriage, doesn't it make sense to date a friend and to marry your best friend? Doesn't that make sense? Uh, Tim Keller tells a story of someone whose best man was a girl, like actually a girl. Um, and, and, and he said what that told you is that he, had married a, he was marrying a sex object. He was not marrying his best friend because she was standing right there next to him. Don't look for somebody who's beautiful or fits your ideal of what attractive is and then try to make them into a friend. Uh, married people, married people, realize that if somebody else becomes your best friend other than your spouse, then that's putting your marriage in a very dangerous place. Your spouse has to be your best friend. Uh, number two, look for somebody who knows what it is to be a friend. Are they consistent? Uh, are they honest? about themselves and about you? Do they listen? Are they open with you or do they keep secrets from you? Do they build you up or do they tear you down? Do they build you up or do they tear you down? Do they see your strengths and acknowledge those? Or do they constantly point out your weaknesses? Are they always putting you down? Are they, are they verbally abusive or abusive in any way? Um, number three or four, I've lost track. Um, if you're going to become one with somebody, you might want to look for somebody that you want to be like, not just somebody you like. Look for somebody you want to be like, not just somebody that you like. You, you, you may not believe it, but you're going to become like this other person. You're going to become one with them, and, and your personalities are going to get all melded together and all this good stuff. And you're going to become a lot like the person that you marry. So don't just choose somebody you like. Choose somebody you want to be like. Are they a believer? Uh, are they honest? Are they compassionate? Are they, are they humble? Are they concerned with, with holiness? Are you really passionate about the same things? Um, married people, do we, do we forget this? Have we forgotten this, that our, that our spouse is supposed to be our best friend? Are you, are you married with, or, or excuse me, are you living with your, your best friend or are you just living with a business partner? Is your spouse your best friend or have they just kind of become a business partner? What does it say to your spouse when you don't have time for them because of your work? Or because the house isn't clean enough? Or because of your hobbies? Uh, or because of the children? I mean, isn't it kind of saying that the house and the work and and the children and the hobbies are more important than your spouse. What does it say when you can't have open, honest conversations with your spouse? There's a guy named Justin Buzzard. That's a great last name. Uh, he, he has a book called Date Your Wife. Date Your Wife. Um, men, uh, imagine how much healthier our marriages would be if we actually took that to heart. Uh, uh, husbands and wives, just think if we spent half the time, if we just put in half the time pursuing our spouse as we did when we were dating. Because we put all this effort in when we're dating, and then it's like, okay, we're, we're good now. And then you kind of get busy 
with life? What if you just went back and tried to put half the effort in to pursuing your spouse that you did when you were dating? The, the first purpose is, is marriage. It's, it's companionship, it's deep uh, friendship. Number two, the second purpose of marriage is holiness. It's holiness. Um, and, and here's what I mean. In, in this fallen world, companionship is not just a, kind of a goal in itself. It's a means to an end of something else. It, coming together and, and becoming one is meant to make us more and more holy. It's meant to make us more and more like Jesus Christ. Uh, but this means that this is how you ought to be thinking about marriage. I want to see myself become more holy and I want to see my spouse become more holy as a result of this relationship we have with each other. I want to help my spouse become the person God intends for them to be, and I want them to help me become the person God intends for me to be. Uh, Ephesians 5 says this very specifically to husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water uh, with the word. It says it very, very specific instructions to husbands. But I think you can look at other passages of scriptures like uh, 1 Peter 3 and see that, that both spouses, husbands and wives, are involved in this. We're both sanctifying one another within the relationship of marriage. We're, we're, we're helping one another become the people God wants us to be. Uh, Tim Keller in his book on marriage put it this way, what then is marriage for? It is for helping each other to become our future glory selves, the new creations that God will eventually make us. The common horizon husband and wife look toward is the throne and the holy, spotless, and blameless nature we will have. I can think of no more powerful common horizon than that. And that is why putting Christian friendship at the heart of a marriage relationship can lift it to a level that no other vision for marriage approaches. And so think about it like this. Just picture a bride and a groom, all right? And they're, they're getting married, and they've, they've, they've said their vows to one another, and they've listened to the homily and all that, and they've kissed, and now they're standing at the front, and they're looking, all right? And what are they looking at? Well, they're looking at everybody there. They're looking at the back door because they want to get out of there. But, but what he's saying is what, what you really ought to be looking forward to is that one day you're going to be standing before the throne of God, in all your glory, perfect and spotless, without blemish. And that's where you're journeying together to. And you ought to be helping one another down that path along that journey. You ought to be concerned with making one another holy, with, with, with being a part of that process where we become more and more like Jesus, where we become more and more beautiful, where we become the people God wants us to be. I think if we thought about that, that would, that would really rewire the way we think about marriage as this journey to this destination together. So, so what does that mean practically? Um, number one, it means if you're a believer that you can't really marry someone who's not a believer. And that's not because not believers are not nice or, or, or whatever. Uh, for one, the Bible prohibits it. But, but do you see in this why the Bible would prohibit that? It's because you can't ever have that deep oneness with somebody who's not a believer. Because at the end of the day, you don't share the same common goal that solidifies your oneness. You're not on the same journey. Um, 
a Clemson fan, a Clemson fan understands a Carolina fan better than a non-Christian can understand a Christian. All right. So some of you are like, I could never marry somebody who reached for the other team, uh, but I'd be perfectly fine marrying somebody who's not a believer. All right. And that's kind of that's kind of crazy, right? Um, and, and some of you maybe even you're a believer and you're in a relationship with a non-believer right now. And I think possibly the reason for that is because you begin to think that this relationship with that person is the gas that fills the tank. Like it's not God and you, you've put all your hopes on this person. This is going to be the one who can fill me, who can complete me. And you're looking to them instead of actually looking to Jesus Christ and trusting him for that. And so you can't really marry or date seriously someone who's not a believer. Uh, number two, marriage really can have a, a powerful sanctifying effect on our lives because in the marriage relationship, you're in closer proximity with another person than with anybody else, any other relationship. Uh, you might think about it like this. Marriage is one big invasion of privacy, okay? And so... So if you really like your personal space, well, you, you might want to think about this a little bit uh, because it's, it's all going to be out there for each other. Your sickness, your moodiness, the, the weird things you do while you're looking in the mirror, you know, how much time you spend in the bathroom, all of that, uh, your hypocrisy, your junk, your sin, it's all just out there for the other person to see. It's all out there for them to see. Mike Mason, he wrote a good book on marriage, said, the closer we're drawn into the brilliant and mysterious circle of another person, the more we must ourselves be revealed in the other's light, revealed for what we are. Like you really, you're gonna, they're going to see who you really are, and you're going to start to see who you really are. Others are the mirrors in which we are constrained to see ourselves, not as we would like to be, but as we are. You can kind of fool yourself when you're on your own, but when you get into that kind of relationship with another person and they're kind of reflecting you back to you and you're like, oh man, I'm, I'm a lot worse than I thought I was. Whenever, he goes on to say, whenever we pull away, searching in one mirror after another for a more pleasing image, what we are really doing is avoiding the truth about ourselves. Um, living with your spouse is going to, it really is going to help you to see your, your, your own junk, your own sin. Uh, you think you can see it now, but believe me, it gets much better, if better is the right way to put it, um, when you get married. Uh, one pastor said it's like you're excreting spiritually all over the place, okay? And it's just, it's just there. It, it, it's on the carpet. It's, it's all over the place. Um, because suddenly, like before, your sins just cause problems for you, right, relatively speaking, but now your sins are affecting another person. And so the stuff you're doing is like, doesn't have consequences for you, it has consequences for this other person as well. It causes problems for both of you. And when that happens, so you're, so you're in this marriage relationship and, and there's your sin, it's just kind of out there and you gotta do something about it, what are you gonna do? What are you gonna do? It's obvious, it's painful, what are you gonna do? Uh, you can deny it. You can try to deny it. You can, you can try to blame the other person game. You know, which we, like, we, we, well, it's not, the reason I did this is because you did that. And so we don't really hear what they told us. We just immediately blame the other person. 
We can try to just sweep it under the carpet and act like nothing happened. We can just run away from it and go hang out with our friends. But if you do that over time, what happens is your marriage is going to start to rot from within because you're not, you're not dealing with the stuff that's there. You have to actually deal with that. And you're not going to experience the growth in marriage that God intends for you to, to experience. The alternative then, what's the alternative? The alternative is to actually let your spouse clean you. Uh, which is very delicate, which is very hard, but it's just what Jesus does with his church that we do in, in micro with one another. And what that means is we don't try to hide. We don't defend ourselves when we're confronted with sin. We don't try to excuse our behavior. We simply say, that's right. That's who I am. And I need to change. Will you forgive me? And will you help me? And that takes a lot of a gospel humility has to develop for you to be able to, to look at yourself in that way and say, this person who's confronting me is, is absolutely right about who I am because they see me better than any other person sees me. This also means that if you're the one that's been sinned against, you have to, to keep loving your spouse through that. You have to keep loving your spouse through that, even when they're hard to live with. Because, remember, Jesus died for us when? When we were easy to live with? Uh, when, when we had it all together? No, Jesus died for us when we were his enemies and wanted nothing to do with him. Uh, when your husband or your wife sins against you, your first reaction is going to be to lash out to get them back or to withdraw and just say, I just don't want to deal with this at all. But you're never going to make each other holy that way. You're never going to help one another become who God wants you to be in that way. You have to do what we looked at a few weeks ago in Ephesians 4. You have to speak the truth, but speak the truth in love to one another. Let me, let me tell you a, a story. This is also from, from Keller's book on marriage. There's a guy named Rob, and he married somebody named Jessica. Uh, and Rob was one of these guys, he's just kind of a jerk. Uh, and this is the only way you could describe it. And he never really had any friends. He was always awkward with people. In fourth grade, a counselor said that he was a mild sociopath. Okay, so I don't know if you want to hear that in fourth grade. But um, so that's, that's, that's who this guy was. And somehow he kind of kept all that bottled up while he was dating Jessica. Okay, he's like, he put the lid on that and he, he acted like kind of a normal guy. Um, but then once they got married and it all came out again. Uh, and she started seeing who he really was, and she started getting very obviously unhappy in the marriage. And he started getting worried because he saw how unhappy she was. And so they finally started going to counseling. And, and, and here's what happened. Uh, one evening, both Rob and Jessica began to see that she had been brought into Rob's life for this very purpose. She was a strong woman who was not fragile, she was exactly the kind of person who could stand toe-to-toe -to -toe with Rob and say, that hurt me. I'm going to tell you exactly how it felt until you learn what your words do to people. I'm not going to clam up on you and just withdraw, and I'm not going to attack you back. I'm going to be like Jesus has been with us, accepting us in love, but not allowing us just to destroy ourselves with sin. 
Rob had never had anyone love him like this. People had either just given up and withdrawn from him or had simply attacked him. Here was someone who calmly but candidly described the devastating effect of his words. And most transforming of all was the fact that this person who was telling him about his hurtfulness was the person he loved most in the world. The more Jessica loved him so nobly and well, the less he wanted to see her hurt. And so slowly but surely, Rob began to listen and learn and change. See, when, when you see your spouse loving you and serving you in the midst of your sin, it begins to have this softening effect on your heart. It actually begins to change you over time. And so that's, that's one of the purposes of marriage. It can have this powerful, sanctifying effect in our lives if we'll be humble and honest and listen to what our spouse is saying to us. And if we'll love our spouse well, even when that's hard for us to do. Let me point out a couple more quickly and we'll wrap up. Uh, marriage is intended for companionship. It's intended to make us holy. It's also intended, as we saw in these texts, to produce godly offspring. Uh, children are one of the purposes of marriage, and I think that gets kind of lost in the discussion of marriage sometimes these days. Now, the Bible nowhere says you have to have as many children as is physically possible. Uh, are that two or five or eight or 18 or whatever is, is the magic number. But it does view children as a heritage and a reward and a blessing from God, as a good thing, not a burden, not these things that are dragging down on all of your free time. Although they will drag down on all of your free time, uh, especially, when, especially when they're really young and there's like you're just serving them all the time. There's no real back and forth in the relationship and you're just changing diapers and doing all that stuff. And you're just like, what happened to my life, right, that I used to have? Well, that's actually very good for us because one of our main problems is we think life is all about me and what I get to do. And so children, marriage sanctifies you a little bit and then children like doubles down on that. Um, and sanctifies you even further. Children are a good thing. They're one of the purposes of marriages, uh, of marriage, and the goal is to see them grow up to know Jesus uh, and to love Jesus. We're gonna, we'll talk about that more in a few weeks. The last thing here, uh, Ephesians 5 is, is so amazing and so uh, humbling and difficult because it says that our marriage is supposed to be a picture of the gospel that our marriages are supposed to be a picture of the gospel. Now, I think that actually works a couple of ways. On the one hand, your marriage actually helps you to understand the gospel better. On the other hand, the way you interact with your spouse is supposed to be painting a picture of the gospel for others. So let's, let's deal with that first one first. On the one hand, your marriage is supposed to help you understand the gospel better. And, and here's how that works. When you have to stand and forgive your spouse who's sinned against you, perhaps badly, that really begins to help you understand, whoa, God forgave me. God forgave me when I was sinning against him in much worse ways than this. And also when, when it's flipped around, when you're the one having to ask for forgiveness, when you have to ask your spouse for forgiveness, and you, you see them say, I love you, 
and I forgive you, and I accept you, and I welcome you. That, that points you to the gospel as well. That points you to what Jesus Christ has done. Our marriages help us understand the gospel better. Um, marriage helps us understand that we can't earn God's forgiveness. That we can't earn God's forgiveness through our performance because marriage is constantly slamming us with our failures. And you're constantly seeing how bad you've messed up in it. Sometimes that happens with big nasty sins. More than often it just help, takes place in little ordinary everyday sins. It helps you and your spouse understand what a great thing God has done in actually forgiving your sins is you have to forgive one another. But then finally, marriage is also meant to be a picture of Jesus' love for us. It's meant to be a picture of the gospel. Uh, the way you love your spouse, and in particular, men, the text tells us the way you love and serve your bride is meant to be a picture of the way Jesus Christ loves and serves his bride, the church, and gave himself up for her. Husbands, love your wives. Uh, husbands, love your wives. Husband is, uh, husbands, is the way you're loving your wives pointing people to the gospel? Wives, is the way you respect and submit to your husband pointing others to the gospel? Are you pointing people to Jesus? Is the way you fight and confess and, and make up and forgive one another, is that pointing other people to Jesus? Is seeing the way your sin affects not only you, but another person as well, a person you've promised to love, is that driving you to Jesus? Is that driving you back to the gospel? I, I want to encourage you to remember the, the purpose of marriage, all these things that we've talked about, but also to let your marriage drive you to Jesus Christ as you see all of the faults in it. Don't despair, but run to Jesus with it because he stands ready and willing to forgive you and to heal you and to heal your marriage and all its brokenness as well. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the, for the mystery of marriage. Uh, and, and the joy that that is, the companionship and the oneness that that brings, uh, the sanctifying effect that that can have in our lives. Uh, and yet, Father, we see all these things and we know how far short we fall of them, of really realizing the joy that could be ours. Uh, and so we thank you for Jesus. He comes into to broken marriages. He comes into places where we haven't been doing well in our marriages. He comes in and brings forgiveness healing. So Father, as we look at this, if we are reminded of our shortcomings, I pray that we would not despair, uh, but that we would run anew to Jesus. We pray it all in his name. Amen.